Amen. If God had a name, what would it be and would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant you would have to believe in things like heaven and Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? What if God was one of us? Those are lyrics to a song. Some of you are old enough to remember, others you are, uh, are not. But it was a song written by Eric Bazilian. It rose as high as number four and it was nominated for record and both record and song of the year in 1996. The lyrics seem to indicate that Mr. Bazilian was a spiritual person or had leanings in that direction, thought at least of spiritual things. But he would disagree, even though he did admit that religion had a pull on him and that he kept coming back to Uh, The young lady that sang the song, Joan Osborne, was a one-hit wonder. Uh, We never heard from her again. But she admitted that if there was just one song I would have to be associated with, it was a good one. And she thought that because she believed that the song caused people to go back and to think about and reflect on their own spirituality and the relationship with God. And she even said that that never gets old. Now, the most natural way when we hear those lyrics, the most natural way to interpret that question, what if God was one of us, is to believe that the focus is all on the singer and the listener and how they might respond to God if God were in fact one of us. But there are other ways that we can think of that or interpret that initial question. And we interpret it that first way automatically because the other secondary questions lead us in that direction. But the other way that we can interpret, the other two ways that we can interpret that one is that the intent could be to ponder what if God became one of us? What if God became human? Another way would be to interpret that, you know, what would happen if he did become human? What would he do? And you and I both know that we have answers to all three of those questions. We have answers to all three. God did become man. He did become one of us. And so it eliminates that whole what if scenario to the first question. He was, in fact, one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have the the second answer. And by becoming one of us, and this language is going to be familiar to those of you who have been with us throughout our study of Leviticus. But by becoming one of us, he made dwelling with God in God's house possible. And then lastly, we also have the answer to the third part of that, which, which is if God were to become one of us or was one of us, we should respond appropriately. And that's, that's the outline tonight. God was one of us in Christ. He made dwelling with God in his house possible. And third, we should respond appropriately to that truth. So if you would, let's stand again uh, one more time in the honor of God's word. I want to read verses 1 to 3 again, as well as verse 14. And then I want to add verse 18 for our for context. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, 14 and 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, without him was nothing or not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who has at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The grass wither, withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for what we have heard from your word. And we'd ask that tonight you would, by your spirit, illuminate the fullness of the truth and importance of the incarnation of Christ. In the name of the one who has made knowing you and dwelling with you possible. Amen. You may be seated. Well, by divine inspiration and because he actually had spent a great deal of time with him over the course of his ministry, John is looking back in retrospect and he chooses to describe the Son of God as the Word or the Logos. And he did so because he knew that Jesus was the clearest and most unambiguous way or expression or way to express himself. It was the the best way, the most clearest and unambiguous way for him to explain himself or to make himself known. And we ask, well, why is that? Why why would he choose to do that? And let's let's look, and we've read it twice. Let's look and see how John actually describes him, describes the word, describes the son. First he says, in the beginning was the word. It communicates pre-existence. It it communicates eternality and transcendence. Another way to put this verse would be, when the beginning began, the Word already was. And so the Son wasn't created, He always has been. And as a matter of fact, in verse 3, again, that both Matt and I read, John tells us that not only was He not created, but everything that was created was actually created through Him. But He not only communicates His pre-existence, notice He also communicates his distinctiveness. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In Genesis, we read that in the beginning, God was, or already was. And here in John, we read that the Word already was. And so, human logic alone says that if God already was, and the Word already was, and they were active, they must have been together with one another. And that's what John says. They are with one another. And it communicates that the Father and the Son were distinct persons In a relationship, intimate relationship with one another. So we have the word or the second or the son of God being eternal, preexistent and distinct. And in a relationship with the father. And then thirdly, we read that he was also divine. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. A better translation would be, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. The bottom line is, John is telling the original listeners, and he's telling you and me, that the Word was preexistent, the Word was distinct, and the Word was God. And not a God, but the God. Like the Father, He and the Father were and are two distinct persons, but they have one essence Or one substance. One was not more God than the other. One was. One was 
not greater than or one was not subordinate to the other. They were equal, yet distinct. And we know from the rest of Scripture that their roles were different, but they were harmonious. We also know from the rest of Scripture that they, that they are two distinct persons of three distinct persons of the Trinity. We know throughout Scripture, we read of God the Father and we read of God the Son, those two who are described here, but also God the Holy Spirit. So we believe in the Trinity, God being three persons, distinct persons, all fully God, one essence. But things get even better. If things could get better, things get better in in verse 14, because it says, and that word, that word that was preexistent, that word that was that, that was distinct, that word that was divine also became flesh. The word became flesh. John says the word that preexisted distinct person who was a co-equal with God the Father became flesh. It's called the incarnation. I used the word earlier with the children or at least in the prayer. It's the incarnation and it simply means the act of assuming flesh. And it's the reason that we celebrate Christmas. It's the reason that we take the time each year to celebrate the birth of Christ. The the Apostle Matthew puts it this way. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. So through a divine, supernatural act, God the Son became flesh, became human. He did not take over or borrow a body. He was born of a woman. Truly man. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And we know that what he emptied himself of was not of was of his glory, not of any of his divine attributes. And we know that because of what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Paul said he is the image of the invisible God in him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell on him in him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus Christ, the son of God, was completely human. But he was also totally and truly God. Both human and divine. One person, two natures. No mixture between the two. Therefore, God was, we can answer that first. God was one of us in Christ. We say, okay, why is that significant? Why would that be important? And that, of course, leads us to this, the second point. Look again in verse 14. And the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And this is now, you can probably imagine, my favorite part of this entire passage. Because 
the word dwelled in the Greek actually means encamped or pitched a tent. Another way it can be used is to be defined as tabernacle. Right? The second person of the Trinity, tabernacled. And you know where I'm going with this. It's again, as I mentioned earlier, it's the one it's one example. It's the first example of why studying Leviticus is so important. I said last week it helps us to better understand. It gives us a framework to better understand who Christ is and what he's done and not only understand, but communicate what Christ has done for us. And we have it right here in John chapter one. You remember in our study, because we've said it several times, God instructed Moses to tell the people they were to build a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. And we've said throughout that course that, of course, and that meant that he told them to build that so that he might dwell in their presence. But we also said throughout our study that those two words could be used interchangeably. The word tabernacle means a place where God dwells and a tent of meeting is that place where the divine and human meet. And you can read one be used in place of the other throughout because it was there that God was going to do both and desired to do both. So again, with that in mind, here, verse 14 again, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled. Jesus is the place of God's presence because Jesus was, in fact, God. But he is also the one In whom the divine and human meet. He's the one in whom they meet. Divinity and humanity in Christ are in perfect unity with one another. Without any mixture. Yet yet distinct. But in one person. And in the words of Dr. Morales that we've quoted many times over the last few months, he says, here we find the unveiling of the divine intent for humanity. Nothing less than the fullest communion possible without collapsing the distinction of persons, even as the incarnation unites without obliterating the distinction between his two natures. We see in Christ the desire that, that the, the intimacy of fellowship between the divine and human. We see what it is that God desires to do in fellowship with his people. But how does he make the dwelling, how does he make dwelling in God's house possible? You'll remember these words from early on in our study. Dr. Morales said the tabernacle has a twofold theological meaning. It is first the dwelling of God, Yahweh's home. And secondly, the tabernacle is also the way to God's house. That is the way to God himself to engage with him in fellowship. Stated differently, the tabernacle is not only God's house, the place of his presence, but it is the ordained way of approaching the divine presence. So in Christ, in the incarnation, the importance of the incarnation is we have in in Christ that divine in the one person, that divine and human meeting. So we have Jesus is the one in whom the divine and human meet, but he is also the one through whom the divine and human meet. It is through Christ that. That the human and the divine meet. He is that ordained way of approaching God. And, and he knew that. Remember what he said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what? No one comes to the Father but through me. He knew himself to be that ordained means. 
But that way of approach, as we learned, that way of approach didn't simply, it wasn't secured at his incarnation. Much more, and, and, it's, and it's hard to say it this way, but much with something so miraculous as the incarnation, much more needed to take place. More needed to happen. The, the incarnation was only the first step in what Christ had come to do. Remember the dilemma of the people of Israel. They're wondering how, how can we enter into his presence? How can we approach? How can we ascend the holy mountain? No matter how we put it or how it's described in scripture. There was that question of how can sinful humanity come into the presence of the Lord? And the answer was only through. That, that it was only possible to approach the Lord through his ordained means. Administrated by an ordained mediator. Well. What do we have in Christ? Throughout, we, we've, we've heard over and over that God is both that ordained means and that ordained mediator. He did both for us. And, and think about what he had to do to be that means and that mediator. He had to descend. He was already in the presence of the Lord. He was already in the presence of the Father at his right hand. So he had to leave, Paul says he had to humble himself and leave where he was and descend to tabernacle as the God-man in order, as we talked about last week, in order to, to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant. And not only perfectly fulfill the stipulations of the covenant, but also to take on our sin and disobedience and our failure to obey the covenant as well as the curse of the covenant. He took that on himself, paid the debt that we owed for our sin through his body given for us and his blood shed for us. Through his sacrifice, he became that means. He became, he was that perfect high priest. He was that perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But then what did he do? He rose from the dead. So he descended, lived, died, rose again, ascended back to the Father. And entered in to the Father's presence, securing access for us. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He also says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. It's an anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And I'm going to save what all that means for our study of Hebrews. I don't want to give that away, but that is fantastic. To think that he has gone into the Holy of Holies, securing a place for us. It's as if, I'm going to do it anyway. It's as if we're already there. So it's not just a future hope. It's a present reality. Because remember, he who descended, ascended. And when he ascended, what happened? He and the Father sent the Spirit. He sent the Spirit to us. 
So we not only dwell with Christ because we've been united with him by the spirit, but that but, but he dwells within us by that same spirit. So we've been united to him. He now fills us. And, and that is why we ourselves are called temples or tabernacles. The presence of God dwells within us. Because of what Christ has done. And this is why he told the disciples. You remember what he said in John 16. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? Jesus had to ascend. It was better for the disciples. as It was better for us because by ascending, he and the father sent the spirit. And so by him ascending, the disciples and you and I, by faith, get more of Christ than we would have had had he remained by himself. Because that spirit indwells. And that, by the way, is available to anyone and everyone who will repent of their sin and look to Christ for salvation. And I kind of already alluded to that, but there's so much more we could do there. But I, I want us to think about a few things. How, how do we respond in light of that? And I've this point, I've said it's just we should respond appropriately. But there are four things, and these aren't, again, these aren't going to be new either. Because as I, as I considered this over and over this week, and, and Wendy even came in at one point and says, how are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm stuck. Because I, 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 these same four points just come, kept coming back to me over and over and over again. And I thought, well, but we've already heard those. And I, we've heard a lot of this, right? Which then caused me to think about the, the children's sermon. I, we need to hear things over and over and over again. Because we're prone to forget. But just like on November 3rd, at the conclusion of our study of Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, what the writer says in Hebrews 10 really fits well here. And again, and I can do this because Aaron is actually going to preach through this passage in May. And so we'll get a, new, a different kind of perspective on Hebrews 10 so I can do it here and not give anything away. But in light of... God being one of us. In light of him being one of us in Christ and in light of the fact that he has made dwelling with him possible. How should we respond? Since he was one of us, since he is tabernacles, since he has atoned for our sins, since he has ascended and given us access into the Holy of Holies, since he has sent his spirit, since we not only dwell with him, but he dwells within us. And this is not only a future hope, but a present reality. What do we do? Well, the writer of Hebrews says we, we should draw near. We should draw near and with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We're to draw near and enjoy dwelling with God. Enjoy being with Him now. Abiding with Him. Communing and fellowshipping with Him. Without fear. Without anxiety. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we can approach Him. As children approach a father, God, God, has, God has made that possible. 
We are to draw near to Him because of what Christ has done for us. We've been cleansed and forgiven so that we can approach Him. We're also, in light of all this, we can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He he who has promised is faithful. We, We can trust in, be assured of, and be confident in our salvation, and it can be the confession that we that we pronounce. It can be the, the profession that we announce and not waver in. We can be assured of our salvation because He is the one that's preserving us. He who went to such great lengths to save us can be trusted. He who, again, humbled Himself... He who sent His Son and and His Son who humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross can be trusted. Because as Jesus said in John 6, right? He said, of those the Father has given me, I will not lose. We can rest and hold fast the confession of our hope. Thirdly, we can consider how to... how to stir up one another to love and good works. Because of what He has done for us, right? We're in union with Christ by the Spirit. We're also in union with one another. And we can come alongside one another and stir one another up. How might we live in light of this reality that we have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ? We've said many times the Christian life is not a life of isolation. We're living life together. We're a part of a community. And we're to point one another to the Lord Jesus. We're not to point one another to ourselves or, or to anything else. We're to, we're to point one another to Christ. And then finally, we're to not neglect meeting together. Right? We, we don't neglect meeting together. We come and we gather on a weekly basis because God calls His people to worship. I say it every week as we begin. He has called us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we come to do that together because, because of what Christ has, has purchased and secured for us. And so it's here through word and sacrament that that spirit who... who dwells within us it's it's here through word and sacrament that that spirit fills us and we're again as i pray on almost a weekly basis that the spirit that equips fills us and equips us for ministry to one another and to those outside our community those that are in our community outside our walls and in our community loving them well it's here as we gather around the table as i'll mention in just a minute where all of these, these four things actually take place. May we not grow cold. May, may we not forget what it is Christ has done for us. Who He was and what He's done for us. May we not get caught up in the sentimentality and all that's a part of the season that begins now in September and even earlier. May we not forget what we're celebrating, who we're celebrating. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.